0: I think before we start this morning, let's just open up in a a word of prayer uh, for the hurricane coming in, and for those of our neighbors in Florida, Uh, as it it was supposed to hit this morning. I don't have an update, um, but I think it it probably did. I just don't know where. But let's just be in prayer uh, and corporately take that moment, Lord. We do lift up our neighbors in Florida, and we uh, we just can't even imagine uh, what they're experiencing right now and what they're going through. Uh, Lord, we can't imagine the potential devastation that's going to be left um, after the storm, which will require rebuilding and and moving forward with with their lives. Um, Lord, so we just pray for them this morning. We just want to lift them up and pray for their protection. We want to pray for um, just a minimizing of the damage um, of their property and personal property, Lord, but also the strength uh, and encouragement that only you can provide after the storm. Uh, and so we lift them up to you. We, we pray for our own area this week as uh, many things can happen off of the, the tail end of one of these storms. But we also pray for our protection and, uh, and wisdom as we seek to protect our family and those that we love as well. So uh, we, we recognize this is bigger than us. And um, in that way, we're grateful uh, because we're forced to depend upon you. And so it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, we've really been covering a a pretty deep doctrinal section in the book of Romans, but I want to encourage you to hang in there because this is also one of the most practical sections in all the Bible, practical as it relates to how you live your Christian life on a day-to-day basis. You know, most Christians would say, I want to live a life that's glorifying to God. I want to live a life that bears fruit unto God. I want to live a life that he is going to uh, state to me when I appear before him at the judgment seat of Christ. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's what we all want, isn't it? I mean, isn't that what we want out of our Christian life? And so this right here, this theological truth is, again, God getting behind the, the kitchen window, so to speak. He's letting you inside the kitchen behind the curtain, to show you what he's done, not only to save you from the penalty of sins. That's We've covered that in, in the first five chapters of Romans. But now he's telling you what he's done to save you from the power of sin in your daily life. And you know what? That hits us on Monday afternoon, doesn't it? That hits us on Sunday afternoon. In fact, if we're honest, sometimes it hits us on the parking lot on the way out of church on Sunday when our kids are misbehaving and we react in anger and yell at them. We need deliverance from the power of sin. If we don't get that, we'll destroy our lives. We'll leave a, a mass carnage in our wake as believers. We'll destroy relationships. We'll destroy fellowship with other believers. We'll complain. We'll gripe. And we will never experience the abundant life that God has in store for you and me. And so as we've looked at this idea, there are two lessons that every one of us, and this is a repeat if you've been here in the last couple of weeks, but if not, Welcome to the two lessons that we need to learn. The first one is very important. In fact, it's kind of like Mr. Miyagi. If you don't have the first one down, just when you get to number two, just read rule number one again. Read that first lesson because everybody on this earth needs to realize they cannot save themselves. You know, it doesn't take much to realize that we're not good enough to get to heaven, that nobody's perfect. Everyone will admit that. You can take the, the, the most sinful person on the street uh, who's just enjoying sin and say, oh, yeah, I'm not perfect. And what will the, the follow-up comment be? But nobody is, right? We all recognize that nobody's perfect. And to get to heaven, you've got to be perfect. To get to heaven, you have to have a righteousness equal to God's righteousness. To get to heaven, you have to have somebody or someone willing to pay your sin debt, your penalty, which is death. See, the good news and the lesson that we can learn from the Bible, the first five chapters of the book of Romans is something called the gospel. The gospel involves a person in his work. Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose again. And so we need to realize we can't save ourselves. but you know what? The good news is God has sent a deliverer. God has sent someone who can save you. His name's Jesus. He paid the penalty that you deserve. And if he paid it, what penalty is left? For you to pay? No, nothing. Jesus paid it all. That's what the Bible teaches. And so if you put your faith in Jesus, you can be saved from the penalty of sin. That's lesson number one. If we don't have that lesson, don't even worry about lesson two. Just go back to lesson one until that makes sense and until you've personally put your faith in Jesus as your personal sin bearer. And the good news is he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. God accepted his sacrifice on your behalf. Will you accept his sacrifice on your behalf by putting your faith in him alone? But this is a lesson, the second one that many of us need to learn in the Christian life. And that is this, you cannot live the Christian life. And if you have lived the Christian life for any amount of time, you know this is true. Because the things that you want to stop doing, many times you can't stop doing. In fact, given the perfect set of circumstances, we could say that you always respond this way. When life circumstances begin to squeeze you, how do you respond? Do you respond by trusting the Lord? Or do you react to the circumstances? Do you react to people causing negative circumstances? Do you get angry? Do you shut down? Do you run away? Do you fight? How do you respond to circumstances. We see this. And the thing that we need to realize in our Christian life is this. In the same way that God wants to save, wanted to save you from the penalty of sins, he wants to save you or deliver you from the power of sin. And guess what? The deliverer for both is the same man, Jesus Christ. And so where we've been talking through the first five chapters of the book of Romans about Jesus dying for your sins, what we're talking about in Romans 6 is a little distinction. And that is this. You died With Christ to sin. That's the distinction we're making. Jesus died for your sins all by himself. He paid that penalty all by himself. But when we get to Romans 6, we see that God identified identified you with Jesus Christ. He took you out of Adam when you put your faith in Christ. He birthed you again into Christ. And He did that for a reason. We've seen that in Romans 6. If we can just go to the text real quick. You'll see this, that one of the first things that he wants us to know is in verse 3, that you were baptized into Christ Jesus. Why? So that you could be identified or baptized in his death, his burial, and resurrection. That's why God did it. That's why he identified you. And you say, well, that doesn't mean anything to me. It should, because when you go to the end of verse 4, there's a very practical reason why he did this. Look at that last phrase. Even so, we should also walk in newness of life, and then the light bulb should go off and say, that's how I live the Christian life. See, God went through all of this, identifying you in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, so that you could live a pleasing life to him on a moment-by-moment basis. The second thing he wants you to know, and we had talked about in Romans 6, these key words, no, 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 verse 3, you're going to see the word, No. Verse 6, you're going to see the word knowing. Verse 9, which we'll get to today, you're also going to see the word knowing. There are things that God wants you to know because if you don't know them, you can't benefit from them. If you don't know them, you can't count on them, which is what he's going to tell us to do in verse 11. And so what's the second thing he wants you to know in verse 6? He wants you to know that your old man was crucified with Christ. When he identified you in the death of Jesus Christ, He crucified who you were in Adam, and he placed you into Jesus Christ. That old identity in Adam no longer exists. John Clark in Adam no longer exists. But he also did it for another reason. Go on in verse 6. That the body of sin might be done away with. Although we were crucified and our old identity in Adam doesn't exist, we still have indwelling sin with these human bodies. You know, I've used this example before, but it's not like... uh, he took you out of Adam and then changed your body. You still, with this human body, have indwelling sin. That's what Romans 6.6 6 is talking about, this body of sin. And remember that definition, be done away with. It doesn't mean annihilated or destroyed. It's still very, very much present, but it's been put out of business. You don't have to keep it in business by presenting yourself to sin. When sin says get angry, you don't have to say, okay. When sin says lust... You don't have to say, okay, sure, let's do that. When sin, when sin says, get anxious, we don't have to say, sure, let me stew in my anxiety for a couple of hours and worry about everything I can worry about. We're freed from that. We're freed from the dominion of sin through the work of God when he identified us with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Again, notice the practical outcome in verse 6, that the body of sin might be uh, put out of business And look at that next phrase, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Now, what does that imply? That before you were saved, you were a slave to sin. That is the truth of the matter. You may have thought you had freedom in the things that you decided to do. You may have thought that you could have chosen to do right and chosen to do wrong. But God said, that's not true. When you were unsaved, you were a slave to sin. And you know what? Believers— even though we're in Christ, even though we have all these resources, even though God did all this stuff behind the scenes, identifying you with Christ and placing you in and identifying you with his death, burial, and resurrection, we can still present ourselves to sin and practically be its slave. We can still have sin reign in our mortal uh, bodies. And so the question becomes is if God has got a solution, don't you want to avail yourself to that? Or do you like failing? (laughs) Do you like struggling in life? Do you like making the same mistakes over and over? If I gave gave you the assignment to dig a hole, would you want me to give you a toothpick or a pickaxe? And yet many people are living the Christian life digging with a toothpick. Trying to overcome sin in their own strength. If I sent you on a mountain hike, would you want flip-flops or hiking shoes? I mean, the, the analogies can go on and on. And yet many people, when trying to live the Christian life, leave on a Sunday with a, a, a toothpick in their hand and flip-flops on their feet and say, let's go, I'm going to duke it out with sin this week. You will lose. You will lose. You cannot live the Christian life in your own strength. You need God's provision. You need God's deliverer. And that's what Romans 6 is all about. See, in Romans 6-7, as we lead into today, said this. For he who has died has been freed from sin. And we used the example last week in the days of the Civil War, if a, a slave who had been a slave all of his life received word that President Lincoln had signed the Emancipation Proclamation, and yet he continued to go out to the cotton fields day after day, even though it was true that he was free and he was no longer a slave, he wasn't benefiting from that truth. And see, many Christians don't know that you've been freed from sin. You've been freed from sin's dominion. Why? Because you're a great person and you promised to stop sinning. No, because of what God did by identifying you with Jesus Christ. You died with Christ to sin. You're free. We need to start walking in light of that truth. We need to start benefiting from that truth. Take the pickaxe with you out into your daily life, the pickaxe that God has provided, and leave the toothpick at home. Quit depending on the toothpick. Let's start depending on the pickaxe. Let's start depending on the uh, electronic. I'm so, I'm, I'm bad. Let's start depending on the post hole digger right? The the one that's like charged up and jazzed up. And let's depend on that. That's what we got, not a toothpick. And so as we get into Romans 6, notice that he keeps building on this truth. Verse 8. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Now, if we died with Christ, and this is not a uh, a statement that he's, he's wondering the truth of. It's a first-class condition of the Greek. It means since. Now is also a transition word further explaining Paul's point. Paul's not saying this may have happened, this may not have happened. He's saying as a first-class condition of the Greek, let's it did happen and let's assume that it did for argument's sake. You could even translate it since here. Since you died with Christ, you did die with Christ. That is true of you as a believer, whether you realize it or not. You have a death certificate with your name on it, already done. You're not killing yourself today. You're not crucifying yourself today. You're not dying today. You have died. That's what Romans 6 is teaching. This is an already accomplished event. Again, notice that it's, it's already done. It's not Nike, just do it every day. It's already done. It's already been done. You've already been crucified with Christ. And so if it's done, how do you benefit from it? The same way you benefited from a finished work that Jesus did for you 2,000 years ago, you begin to trust, you trust it. You believe it. It's a faith issue now because God has put everything in place for you to benefit from it. Now, will, will you benefit from it as you in the Christian life continue to walk by faith? As you moment by moment depend upon God's provision. Again, notice that in verse 8, we're talking about something that's of certainty. It's past tense. It's something that's already happened. It's a completed fact. In fact, he goes on to say that uh, that this death with Christ is so valid to God. God is not just Going through the motions and just having fun up there, doing positive speak and trying to magically, uh, you know, give you mystical feeling. This, this is true. Okay, This is not just God talking out into thin air or doing sleight of hand tricks and trying to convince you of things. This is true of you. In fact, it's so valid that even though Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed unto men once to die. Do you know that there's one generation of believers that won't experience physical death? We call it the rapture. First Thessalonians 4, you can read about it there, this, this great catching up to meet Jesus in the air. And why don't those people have to die? Because they've already died with Christ. See, that's, that's the truth of what happened here. When, when God identified you with Christ, you did indeed die with Christ. This is what Paul is trying to say here. And based on this fact, Paul believes something. Notice in verse 8, He says, if we die with Christ, and again, first-class condition, and we did, notice that Paul says we believe or we're persuaded, we're convinced of something else. What's he convinced of? We're also going to live with him. See, if you've been united with Christ in his death, then it just makes sense that you're going to be united with him in his resurrection. And that's what Paul is convinced of, that if God identified us with Jesus in his death, we'll remain identified with him in our future life. In fact, you might say it this way, our unity or our union with Christ and his death guarantees our future eternal life with him as well. Why can you be eternally secure in your salvation? Why can you know for sure the moment you put your faith in Christ that you've, you have eternal life and you'll never lose it? Well, number one, we're saved by grace, unmerited favor. You can't do anything to earn it. You can't do anything to deserve it. And so if I can't get it by doing something I earn or deserve, I can't lose it by doing something that I unearn it in that way. It's never earned. It's a gift of God. And so we can be confident in that. But even more so, God promised eternal life. John 3, 16. And if you believe he promises eternal life, He promises that you won't face the death penalty. You'll never perish. That's all part of it. But you know what? Even more than God's promise, there's a basis for which God can make these promises. And you know what? It happened 2,000 years ago when the Son of God went to a hill called Golgotha and he died for your sins and he rose again. This is why God can promise God's not just making promises he can't keep. He's making promises that have a basis to it. What's the basis to God's promises? Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. And he rose again and God accepted his work on your behalf. And if Jesus paid the penalty, what's left for you to pay? Nothing. That's why we can be safe. But another reason we can be safe is this truth found in verse 8, that if you died with Christ, when you put your faith in Christ, God identified you with Jesus in his death. God is also identifying you within his resurrection, and you will one day bodily resurrect. Why? Because Jesus did. And what happened to Jesus happens to you. And what's true of Jesus now becomes true of you. Why? Because you earned it or deserved it? No, (laughs) no. You never earn it or deserve it because God purposed in his heart that when you put your faith in Christ, he would put you in Jesus Christ. He's taking care of all of this, even behind the scenes, even when we don't realize it. Now, Paul's convinced of this truth because he knows something, but he's going to let you in on what he knows. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 says this, Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. What else does Paul know here? Well, he knows that Christ was raised from the dead, and so he's not going to die again. The implication is he's raised from the dead to live on forever. He's not going to die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. And at a point in time, Paul saw this. This word no means to see with perception. He, he made the connection that if Christ raised from the dead, he wasn't going to die again. He's already paid that penalty. He, he yielded himself to death at that moment for a purpose, but it's not that death can come back and regain mastery over Jesus Christ. But guess why this is important? Because the believer is united with Christ. See, this is his whole point here. What's true of Jesus is now true of you. Do you know that when you raise from the dead, there is no chance that you'll die again. There's no chance that you'll have to face the penalty for your sin. Why? Because Jesus faced it and Jesus raised from the dead never to die again. So you'll never die again. This is what he's tying it up. Your unity with Christ is so important that if Jesus dies no more, then the believer also dies no more following their own resurrection from physical death or that generation that gets raptured. This is the guarantee. This is why you won't die again because Jesus won't die again. You see the the connection here. Notice that the text says that Jesus dies no more. And and the emphasis there is it's a present tense continual verb. In other words, he doesn't continue to die. Do you know that there are denominations and religions that teach that Jesus is put back to death on a weekly basis to pay for our sins? You know what the Bible teaches? Many times just the opposite of what religion teaches, unfortunately. Jesus died once. He he doesn't continue to die. That would imply that the penalty still has payments. This isn't the layaway plan. This isn't God's sin penalty layaway plan where Jesus keeps making payments on a weekly basis or on a daily basis. This is Jesus dropped down the whole check at once. Paid it in full, took care of everything all at once. And so even in the, even in the, the Greek emphasis here, as Paul's saying, he doesn't presently and continually die. He died. Point in time in history, 2,000 years ago, done deal. He took care of it all at that moment. Now, when Jesus submitted to his death on the cross, he submitted to death's authority or dominion. And at that level or at that moment, death reigned. Death had dominion. But I love it because death didn't keep its dominion. In fact, what happened three days later after Jesus died? He conquered death. Death no longer had dominion over him due to his resurrection. And what we're going to see is that when Jesus did this, not only was he submitting to die for our sins, which we talk about a lot here, and rightfully so. But in this section, we're going to see that Jesus died unto sin, singular, source. The sin nature, you might call it, the indwelling sin, the power of sin that resides in our mortal bodies. Jesus not only died for our acts of sin and the penalty of sins, plural, but he died to sin. And there's a reason that he did that. It is to change our relationship going forward to sin indwelling in us. Our relationship to sin is completely different than it was the day before you put your faith in Christ, and the reason for that is Jesus died to sin, and when Jesus died to sin, you died with him to sin we'll talk We'll kind of unpackage that a little bit further. however, being raised from the dead as uh, verse nine uh, says uh, Death no longer has dominion over him. He'll no longer die. The debt was paid in full. The, the creditor cannot come back to the debtor. The debt's all gone. And because Jesus paid our debt, he, they can't come collect on us either. There's no debt left to be paid. Jesus paid it all. And so we see that there in verse 9. And as we've been saying, because this is true of Jesus, it's also true of us. It's been true of everyone who's been united with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. And so, you know what we find out in our identification with Christ is not only are there present practical benefits. We've been looking at those, we'll continue to look at those from this identification with Christ. The present practical benefits is you can be delivered from sin's power in your daily life. You don't have to do what you've always done. You don't have to fail the way you've always failed. You don't have to struggle the way you've always struggled. In fact, God is not even calling you to struggle. He's calling you to trust, to depend, to rest. But there are also future practical benefits guaranteed. Our resurrection's guaranteed, our future bodily resurrection, and then this, this guarantee that we'll never die again afterwards. Now, I'm going to bring verse 10 up, and I want to just really quickly um, show you this. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. I want to show you the distinction that Paul is making here. Because many times when we talk about the gospel, we talk about Christ dying for our sins, plural, penalty. That's true. That's a justification truth. That's when we get declared righteous by God. That's when we are guaranteed that we won't perish and that we have eternal life. And many things happen at that moment. But Paul is talking about something a little bit different here as it relates to our Christian life. Notice that he says he died to. And notice he says sin, not sins, not plural. Died to sin. And so when, he, when he's here in verse 10, he's talking about the source of sin, the sin nature, indwelling sin. Christ died to, if you want to say the sin nature or indwelling sin. Uh, We're talking about a different aspect of his work. We want to definitely keep clear the first aspect of his work, that he died for our sins, paying the penalty. But we don't want to miss that second aspect because that is God's key to giving you the the pickaxe for the Christian life. That your relationship to sin has changed because Christ's relationship to sin is, is what it is. He's separated from it. He's not dominated by it. He never was dominated by it. But because God took you into his death, your relationship to sin, the sin nature, the source of sin in your life is the same as Jesus Christ. So when you are dominated by sin, it's because you are volitionally choosing to present yourself to sin. And you don't have to do that anymore. You don't have that direct connection anymore. And So we're going to see this play out as we go on here. So for this, this word for at the beginning of verse 10, just continues to give us a signal that he's further explaining uh, the fact that Christ's death was a one-time event and why this death with him has this ongoing and present significance. Again, it was a one-time event. His death accomplished what God had set out for him to accomplish. But we've got to understand this difference between sins. And let me try to see if I can get this off of uh, the screen here. Is that bothering y'all? It's bothering me. <laughs> Let me come back. That's okay. Technology is easy. Here we go. We're back at it. But you know, with um, verse 10, it's, it's, whoa. I see it, but y'all have seen it. I just messed you up, John. Man, this is really cool. I wish y'all could see this. No, <laughs> no I'm kidding. Now let's just keep going. We'll just, we'll just teach. We, just, uh, we won't see it here for a second. So it's important to, to know when we talk about Christ's relationship to sin, the, the power of sin, sin's nature, he was never connected to the sin nature. In other words, Christ never had a sin nature. Okay? That's, he's unique in that way. He, he didn't have a sin nature, nor was he under sin's dominion um, like it could be said of us. Now, that was our inheritance, unfortunately, By being born in Adam, we have this physical human body that's dying. But also, indwelling this human body is this sin nature. Directly connected and directly controlling everything we did as an unbeliever. But the moment you put your faith in Christ, although you don't get your new body yet, you will. And your new body will be completely delivered from the presence of sin nature or this power of indwelling sin. When you get saved, you still have this human body and you still have a sin nature. But here's the difference. It's no longer controlling you 24-7 all of the time. That power has been broken. And now the only way it can have dominion and power over you is if you volitionally present yourself to it. So God identified us with Christ to change our relationship to sin, to this sin nature. And that's what we see here as we're looking at verse 10. Let's read verse 10 again. For the death that he died, notice this, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. And so this was, again, a one-time event that Christ died to sin. And he died to sin specifically for the purpose to deliver us from it. It wasn't that Christ was dominated by sin. That's not true and perish the thought. But he took us, he died that death so that he could take us into that death so our relationship to sin could be changed. We could specifically be delivered from it. And so as we pointed out, it's important to notice the contrast between sins plural and sins singular here in verse 10. And really starting in about Romans 5.12, you're going to notice that he shifted. He stopped talking about sins, plural, and he started talking about sin singular, this source, this sin nature. So Christ indeed died, did die for our sins. We've said that to pay the penalty so our sins may, forgive may be forgiven, but he also died to sin, and we died with Christ to sin so that our sin nature um, may be condemned. Notice he forgives sins, but he condemns sin. He condemns the source. He condemns the source. And that's why, by the way, when we get to Romans 8.1, one of our favorite verses in the Bible, it says there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why aren't you condemned? Because the very thing that's the source of sin in your life, the sin nature, has already been condemned so that you can go free. That's why you're not condemned. God has condemned sin in you. And so we see that in our death with Christ. And then he says this, in contrast to the finality and completion of his death, look at verse 10. The death that he died, he died to sin once for all. There's a finality and completion to that. But notice that next phrase, the life that he lives, he lives to God. There's a continual living component here. In fact, uh, we see in the amplified version, it says that Jesus or he lives in unbroken fellowship with God. So not only does he live but Jesus' life right now is directed with the purpose. He's living unto God the Father. And see, here's what he's about to say. Guess what? God wants the same for you too. That's what he's about. Look at likewise in verse 11. Just like Jesus, his relationship to sin is, is not in a controlling manner anymore. And just like he's presently living unto the Father, likewise, that's what God wants for you. That's exactly what God wants for you. He wants the same thing. And so, as we said before, the believer does not need to die or crucify themselves to sin every day. That's not the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is you have been crucified already, past tense. Now, what do you do every day? Well, Romans six eleven is going to tell you what to do every day. You are to count on that truth by faith. And you know what? That may, as you, if this is a new concept to you, if you try to start doing that today and start to try to follow God's word in this essence, you know what? You may be counting yourself dead to sin and alive unto God a thousand times a day. Because every time something comes up, you're gonna go back to this truth. But God is doing this or God has done this. And now everything's in place. And we've talked about, we, we joked last week because Robert mentioned it when he was leading singing about this subjunctive mood that we keep seeing in Romans 6. This, this idea that it's everything's in place to probably happen, but it's not a guarantee. And the reason it's not a guarantee is this. Can you guarantee me, you want me to just unplug it? Okay. Can you guarantee me that you're going to walk by faith every moment of the day? And if, and if you could, then you're going to benefit from God's work. You're going to benefit from God's provision. It's going to start to become very practical in that way. And so as John's reading this, it comes with a perfect time because I've got an illustration to read to you. You know that, um, you know that there was a, a man, uh, some of you may have heard this story before, but there was a Japanese soldier. Um, his name was, um, let's see, his last name is Onoda. Uh, Hiru Onoda was his name and you know that um, he continued fighting World War II 29 years after the war had been officially declared over and the way that that worked is Onoda was um, commissioned by some of his commanding officers to an island in the Philippines and this happened December 26, 1944 and the orders from his commanding officer was simple. They told him you were forbidden absolutely forbidden to die by your own hand. It may take three years, it may take five, but whatever happens will come back for you. Until then, so long as you have one soldier, he had a a group of men under his command, you are to continue to lead him. You may have to live on coconuts. If that's the case, then live on coconuts. Under no circumstances are you to give up your life voluntarily. And you're to go and and commit guerrilla Warfare tactics on the inhabitants of that island. Well, Onoda didn't know, but he went in. They dropped him off on the island. And he began following orders. He didn't know that nine months after he was dropped off, that Japan had been hit by two atomic bombs at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. He had not gotten that word. And that they had subsequently um, basically bowed out of the war a month later. And so the war was over, and yet here's Onoda out into the forest. Well, these islanders got sick of these guys taking out their farmers and taking out people that they love. So they tried to drop leaflets all over the forest saying, hey, the, the war's over. Just come out. Like go home. Quit killing people. The war's over. But these guys would get the leaflets, so notice, especially they look at the leaflets and they say, Oh, this is Allied propaganda. They're trying to get us out because we're doing such a good job. And so they ignored the leaflets and kept going about their guerrilla activities. Year after year, as they killed more and more people on the island, the islanders began to drop leaflets, this time from planes. They were renting planes and dropping leaflets all over the forest to tell them the war is over. Stop fighting. Come out. You, don't, you can go home now. And every time they got a leaflet, they didn't believe it. Later, delegates were sent from Japan into the forest calling on loudspeakers and bullhorns saying, the war is over, Onoda, come home. And he wouldn't believe it. He thought everything was a propaganda until one day, it's a really funny story. There was a college student in 1974. Now remember, World War II ended in 1945. 29 years later, 1974, a college student in Japan um, by the name of Suzuki decided he was gonna travel the world for the year. He had three things on his on his Bucket list. One was to find Onoda. The second was to, to see a living panda. And the third, a little bit more reasonable, he was looking for the abominable snowman. So um, <laughs> but you could see the, the level of interest this guy had. You know, he's just going out on an adventure. This college student found Onoda. And he tried to convince him and show him that the war was over, he could come home, and Onoda said, now I've got my orders. And by this time, all of his men had died, and he was the only one left in the forest still carrying out guerrilla warfare tactics when he could. And so finally, this young college student couldn't convince him, traveled back to Japan, and he found one of his commanding officers who was still alive, retired, working part-time at a bookstore. He took him back to the jungles, brought him with him, and finally at that point, Onoda realized and believed that the war was over. And, you know, I, I think about that story because it just reminds me of Romans 6. And and really, the idea here is that the, the battle has been won. God has won the battle. And yet so many of us still think there's a battle raging. And we go out into our daily life to fight that battle, to struggle, to strive, to to grit our teeth, to pull our bootstraps up and go after it again. And I'm here to tell you today that the word of God says the battle has been fought, that God has won. And now you are to take that, your position by faith and believe what God says about these things. See, that's your challenge. Now you can, you can respond just like Onoda and you can say, ah, oh, that's just propaganda. Of course we gotta do something, <laughs> But that's how many people do respond. Oh, come on. We got to do something. And I'm here to tell you that it's all been done. And this is Paul's message as we get to verse 11. Look at verse 11. By the way, we're in chapter six of Romans. We've been studying this book for coming up a little bit less than a year now. And finally, in verse 11, we come to the first command in the entire book. First command. We're six chapters in. And so for those of us that want to obey God, here's your chance. Verse verse 11, likewise, you also reckon, there's our command, reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, I just want, I don't even want a show of hands, but mentally raise your hand. We don't have to physically raise it. How many of you obey that command on a daily basis. How many of you even knew it was in the Bible? And and if we did raise our hands, I, I would imagine that it would be a little sparse in the audience. Because unfortunately, this is not how we naturally think. I catch myself all the time driving down the road and maybe I've lost my temper with my wife or I've lost my temper with my kids or I've done something else sinful and immediately I think, to myself, oh, man, it was probably because I, I only spent 20 minutes reading the Bible this morning. I probably should have spent 30. It, I, I, now, you can relate to that, right? And that's, but that's how we think. The issue was not the time I spent in the Word of God. The issue was I wasn't resting in the Lord. See, God doesn't want to deliver you through a to-do list, He wants to deliver you through a person, and that person has a name, and that person did something incredible. He identified you with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and I wasn't counting on that. I'm trying to dig my hole in my Christian life with a toothpick, and then I wonder why my toothpick keeps breaking. I wonder why I'm not getting very far. Man, this is crazy. Crazy. I leave it a day later, water comes in, blows back over my hole. Man, I got to start all over and I just keep after it with this toothpick. And that is the mindset. So, so Paul is going to say, count on it, reckon on it. This is a faith word. This isn't a, a one-time faith word. Oh, I just reckon and now I'm just going to live a perfect spiritual life. This is a moment by moment dependence. And does that surprise you that God set it up that way? No, because Christianity is not a list of do's and don'ts. It's not about coming to church. It's not about dressing up. It is about a living, vital, intimate relationship with the creator of the universe. And guess what? He wants to spend time with you. And guess what? He wants you to depend upon him. Just like we did when we were little kids. I mean, you remember how it was. I mean, you you took your parents By the hand, and when you were scared, you ran into their room, and you slept with them. And when you were hungry, you went to them to get the food off of the top shelf. You depended upon them. You trusted them. You did, well, you didn't always do what they told you to do, but many times you did do what they told you to do. And just like a little kid has that childlike faith... Don't be that independent teenager of a Christian that says, I got this, God, I don't need you. I can take care of it myself. I got my toothpick, just get out of my way. You know, and many times that's how we live the Christian life. Just like an independent teenager who doesn't know any better. And God is saying, no, no, go back to when you were two years old. When you took my hand to cross the street When the the, the clouds started and the thunder rolled and you came and jumped into my bed because you knew I would protect you. And that's the kind of relationship that God wants us to have with him. You know, the word reckon translates the same word that's used 11 times in chapter 4 of Romans. Remember in chapter 4, this word was used of how God counted something to be true, how God wrote. It's an accounting term. It's... You know, you take out a, an accounting ledger and you, when you put a deposit in, you write it down. So you remember you've got it, you benefit from it. God used this as an accounting term to say, this is where I reckoned or, or counted righteousness. I wrote it down to your account. And you remember what the condition was to get righteousness written on your account? It was faith. It was faith in Christ. The moment you believed in Jesus Christ, you had righteousness written to your account. Now, God is giving you the pen. God wants you to start to count on his provision for you for deliverance from sin's power. And the question is, what are you going to do with that pen? You're going to you just gonna hold it and look at it? You're gonna put the lid back on? You're gonna put it aside? You're gonna put it in a in a desk drawer? Or are you gonna start taking the pen that God gives you and are you gonna start moment by moment writing it down? Writing it down. Counting upon it. Trusting in God's provision. See, it's a faith. This is a faith issue. And this is why back, all the way back in Romans 1, he says, not only you saved by faith, but the just shall live by faith. This is not a one-time event we're talking about. Salvation, justification is a one-time faith event. The moment you transfer your faith to Jesus Christ, you're saved. Sanctification is an ongoing faith, reliance upon God and his provision to deliver you from sin's power. What are you going to do with the pen? Are you going to write it down? Are you going to start counting upon that in your daily life? Or are you going to still count on your quiet time? Now, I I've been hard on quiet times the last couple of weeks. And I and I'm not saying don't read your Bible. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying don't pray. I'm not saying uh, well, that's another topic. But but some, some people depend on accountability partners. I might be saying don't have accountability partner. That's a whole other sermon. But I'm not saying that some of these things uh, are good. Of course we want to read our Bible. We want to learn about God. But if you're depending on the amount of time that you spend in the Bible to deliver you from sin's power, you're depending on the wrong thing. God is not a distant God, here's the list, just follow that, you'll be okay. No, God is an intimate, personal God. He wants to deliver you from sin's power. He wants your dependence upon him, not on your list. And it's so crazy how religion can distract us and how legalism can distract us and how legalism can lead us into being dominated by sin. And because we read an hour today and we still sin, then if we think if we read an hour and a half tomorrow, we won't sin. That's a lie from the devil. That's that's a lie from the pit of hell. That's a lie from your sin nature. The sin nature wants to keep you busy and busy and busy and busy. Anything but depending upon Jesus Christ. Anything. Give me anything but Jesus Christ. The sin nature will take that every time. Because he knows apart from him, you've got no power. You've got no strength. And that's why Galatians 2.20 says, The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. It's a person who delivers you, not a list of do's and don'ts, not your method of overcoming sin, not your strategy, your cleverly devised fables, not the latest bestseller at the Christian bookstore to tell you how to overcome sin. Jesus Christ, a person. Just don't forget that. I mean, isn't that true? I mean, when we share the gospel, who do we not want to forget? It's like when we do it at the fair, how are you saved? Why would God let you in? We ask people and they say, well, because I go to church and I try to keep the Ten Commandments and I give money and I do this. And then we say, well, what about Jesus Christ? Oh, yeah, him too. No, not him too, him only. And if you can remember that for your Christian life, you're going to be a lot farther along tomorrow than you were today right and that's what we're talking about here and paul is saying not only do you reckon it's a present tense word continue to reckon start counting go on reckoning go on writing this down go on counting on the lord jesus christ as the great theologian carl green would say there's a lot more still to be said but we're going to end it right there today but i will encourage i want to encourage you and challenge you at the same time you know, you've got a week coming up, and um, my guess with this storm coming is that we're going to face some level of trials, some level of disruption in our schedule this week. That's my guess. I'm not a prophet, but it just kind of seems that that's the way it's going. So instead of approaching this week and getting, um, as, a, as an old co-worker, Southern co used to say, she used to say, don't get wrapped around the axle, you know, and 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 so many times we get wrapped around the axle with life circumstances. So instead of doing that this week, instead of thinking about all the things that you need to do, should do, probably ought to do to be a good Christian, which so many people, that's how we live the Christian life, as to what we think we should be doing to be a good Christian. Instead of that, I want you to simply back up this week. I, I want you to simplify your Christian life. I want you to take Romans 6.11 and I want you to say, Lord, I want to obey that command this week. I want to begin to count on you that I have died to sin and that I'm alive unto God. And the life that Jesus lives to the Father is the same life you have designed for me to live. That's a a faith challenge to you. I'm I'm not asking you to believe God to move a mountain. I'm just asking you to believe what God wrote in his word, right? And and allegedly, that's why we're here, to to learn God's word and to believe God's word and to apply God's word. And so I'm challenging you this week. And you know what? All I want you to do this week, if you're thinking about what you should do and what you ought to be doing, just erase that from your mind just this week. I know that's going to be uncomfortable for some because we always want to be doing something. Take the posture of Mary this week. Will you just enjoy Jesus Christ? (laughs) He's enjoyable. He's incredible. Would you just rest in what he's done for you and just rejoice in that this week? And I think you'll be surprised because as you do that and as you have this unhindered fellowship as you're living unto God, there's gonna be opportunities probably for you to respond to him and what he wants to do in and through you. But it's always about what he wants to do in and through you, not what you decide you think you ought to be doing and you should be doing. It's fellowship with the Lord, enjoyment of Him, and a response to how He's working. So let's close with a word of prayer. Lord, I do thank You for um, Your Word. And Lord, just we beg of You this week, we want to, by faith, just rest in Your provision uh, for deliverance from sin's power. We know that that would revolutionize our lives. It would revolutionize our relationships, not only with you, but with others. Um, Lord, we're so incapable. We, we naturally want to strive and struggle and fight and claw our way to victory, but may we just learn that that's not the way to victory and that it's in the victory that you've already provided in your identification of us with Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection. And so we just look to you this week. We want to see that made uh, practical in our life. And so we trust you to do that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.